Remember the good old days before Microsoft Word had autosave? You'd type up some important document and then your computer would freeze and you'd lose hours of work just because you forgot to hit save? Well, that's what it's like going online without ExpressVPN. Every time you're connected to an unencrypted network, whether it's in an airport, a hotel, a cafe, or anywhere, your online data is not secure. Any person on that same network who knows what they're doing can gain access to your personal data. Bank logins, credit card details, passwords, all the stuff you don't want people seeing. Unfortunately, hacking has become much easier than it used to be. People don't even have to be exceptionally skilled to do it, and there's a lot of money to be made by selling your information on the dark web. ExpressVPN stops hackers from stealing your data by creating a secure, encrypted tunnel between your device and the internet. It's incredibly easy to use. Once the app is running, you literally click one button to get protected. And it works on your phone, laptop, tablet, and more, so you can stay protected on the go. I've been using ExpressVPN for a little while now, and I can rest easy knowing my info is safe and secure. I've heard horror stories of people who've been hacked, and it sounds like a massive pain to try to get any resolution in the aftermath, so I am not interested in finding out what that process is like. Secure your online data today by visiting expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash slashfilm, and you can get an extra three months free. expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Slash Film Daily for Friday, July 3rd, 2020. On today's episode, we're going to discuss what we've been up to at the water cooler. This is Slash Film Editor-in-Chief Peter Serretta. And joining me on today's podcast is Slash Film Managing Editor Jacob Hall. Hello, hello. Weekend Editor Brad Oman. Hey, that's me. Senior Writer Ben Pearson. Hey, what's going on? And Writer Chris Evangelista. Hello, folks. HT couldn't make it here today, but we're going to carry on without her. Uh, let's jump into it. Uh, let's talk about what we've been doing. Chris, you are the only person that's been doing anything this week. It's true. I'm a, I'm a busy boy. I recorded a new episode of 21st Century Spielberg. This is a bonus episode. Uh, my guest this time was Scott Mendelson. He writes for Forbes. And uh, I had a, a lot of fun with this one. Uh, he was he was a very lively guest. That's not the, you know, I'm not shitting on my previous guests. He just, <laughs> he just had a lot more to say than, than some other guests so far. So it's a very entertaining episode. We talk about uh, Munich and War of the Worlds, but we also talk about a lot of other stuff. We talk about the Christopher Nolan chair controversy, all the, all the, all the fun stuff that's going on. <laughs> talk about yeah. if movie theaters are going to reopen again or not, because that's, hey, you know, Scott uh, primarily writes about box office, so that's sort of like his his field of expertise. So I wanted to get his opinion on that. So please go listen to that episode if you will. It's it's available now. Yeah, Scott Scott has opinions on everything. Yes, he has a lot of opinions. Yes, I, I like talking to him. I usually see him at like or before the pandemic. I usually saw him at screenings and stuff like that. Uh, he, he usually has you know strong opinion, strong thoughts on everything. Yes. So, uh, okay, let's move on to what we've been reading. Jacob, what have you been reading this week? I've been catching up on some uh, comics, and two I want to call out specifically. One ended late last year, but I fell off of it because uh, I missed a few physical issues, and I and I felt like I'd hate to be the guy who didn't have physical issues, but I eventually got around to reordering them through eBay and, and finished a series, and that is uh, Curse Words, the uh, image comic series written by Charles Soule who writes a lot of Marvel, a lot of Star Wars comics. He's one of the main writers on the new um, the new publishing initiative that Star Wars is having. And artist Ryan Brown, who uh, wrote and drew one of my favorite comedy comics of all time called God Hates Astronauts. Uh, and Curse Words is this incredibly funny, incredibly strange uh, fantasy series about this 
fantasy world called the whole world. Um, it's with an H, not W. Uh, sort of a Master of the Universe esque dark fantasy world, Saturday morning cartoon, but a little, but a little more R rated. Uh, and a master of that world sends his uh, his chief dark wizard named Wizard to Earth to destroy it and conquer it for his kind. And Wizard gets to Earth and realizes he kind of likes it there, and realizes that he can become a very fast celebrity and millionaire if he uses his magic to um, solve people's problems. So it ends up being this. Uh, Initially, a fish out of water series about an evil wizard pretending to be a good wizard to become rich and famous in the world, and ends up realizing that oh, he didn't do his job, so now all of the actual evil from his previous world are invading, and he has to defend Earth from his old friends. And it is really funny. It is like drop hysterical. Like it's not just around with the art. I think um, Ryan Brown just has a knack for drawing physical comedy, and just the, the way he. Um, will draw sound effects into the um, uh, environments is, is something I've never seen done as well as he does. And Charles soul is, I know he, I, I've always liked his writing. This first time I read him like doing an out and out comedy. And I wish he would, I hope he does more because he's genuinely funny. He has a real knack for character driven comedy as well as just completely random, surreal, silly things. Uh, and that's curse words. It's 28 issues, you know, all available in publication in some capacity, either digitally or physically. Uh, I know that they just kickstarted a hardcover for the entire uh, series in one volume, which I missed the Kickstarter, but I'm hoping to still track down a copy. Uh, it is so much fun. Brad, you would love curse words. This is so much a Brad thing. Uh, but I, I knew I knew nothing about this, and I'm uh, I'm a big Charles Soul guy. I, I ought to also try to track down, I guess, yeah, one this of these sounds, hardcovers. This sounds really funny and really interesting. I might have to check it out as well. Yeah, if... Oh man! Uh, in, the, in the last home stretch, it's not that the, it, it it's not that the, there aren't dramatic stakes before the ending, but it managed to do a really good job of balancing humor with really being about stuff, which is uh, it's, it's, maybe it's a, a low hanging fruit to comment something on. But I feel like so many comedies or uh, comedy series in any in any medium, film, TV, or uh, are try to like become a become become about something serious in the, in the home stretch it's like hey let's stop being funny and talk about why something matters or i think curse words does a really good job of slowly building to that and realizing what this series is about in time for it to really hit you hard in the end uh but another another charles soul series i've been reading this one's new it's only six issues in and he co-writes it uh with scott snyder who writes a lot of horror comics for image but also wrote batman for a long time wrote justice league and it's written by, uh, sorry, um, illustrated by uh, Giuseppe Comancoli, who I've seen a lot of, does a lot of Marvel work as well. And this is called Undiscovered Country. And it's a science fiction series about how in the future, I think it's uh, set in 2060s, uh, a plague has is ravaging the world, <laughs> which is which I did not know it. I did not realize that that was really about when I started reading it. Uh, people are dying. And America is not there because 30 years earlier, America erected literal walls aren't borders installed all kinds of advanced technology to block out communication and has been completely isolated and cut off from the world for, for three decades to the point where kids have grown up in a world without the United States and are unaware of what America is. And then in the middle of this, of this pandemic, uh, a message comes out from America for the first time in 30 years of a scientist saying, we have a cure for the pandemic. Meet us within our borders. And we will we will meet with you and we will uh, solve all this. So a team of international uh, soldiers, diplomats, scientists, and other shady figures uh, fly into America for the first time in 30 years and encounter really, really bad things. America has become something really awful <laughs> in 30 years of isolation. And it feels like uh, the combination of 
like pulp daring do is a lot of adventure, a lot of action, a lot of big crazy sci-fi ideas. But also Snyder and Soul not so subtly deconstructing the idea of America in the 21st century, its role in the 21st century on an international stage, and its responsibilities or lack thereof. Uh, this is Undiscovered Country, only six issues in. I think the first trade paperback collecting the first arc is out now. Uh, it's, it's really good. It's really creepy and exciting and weird, and I really recommend it. So that's Undiscovered Country. It, it sounds really good, but I'm not sure it's something I want to read right now. Yes. That was the issue is that I, I, it's, the series started before the pandemic, but I, I bought the first, you know, six issues and then hadn't read them yet. So I sat down the other day and read through them all in one sitting. I'm like, man, this is really good. It also make me feel really bad, but it's also, but it is a really, really strong comic. So if you have a, the need or the desire to put aside real world events and, and, and engage with it, uh, it, it is worth your time. Okay, let's move on to what we've been watching. Let's start first with Eurovision Song Contest, the story of of Fire Saga, I guess. Uh, Chris, you saw this uh, last week. What, what did you think? I did. I, I really like this. Uh, I was hesitant to watch it um, because I, I'd heard somewhat mixed things, although you know I've heard plenty of positive things too. And I was also hesitant because it's, it's over two hours long, and I feel like no comedy should be that long, no matter how good it is that said i i had a lot of fun with this um it's not it's not like a classic it has it has problems the the runtime is definitely one of those problems but it's so just silly and funny and good-natured and uh rachel mcadams is is so good and it dan stevens is really good and it even you know will farrell is everyone in the movie is very good and i i liked how it sort of defied what I was expecting. Like I, you know, it sort of sets up, you think like Dan Stevens is going to be the villain, but he turns out to be kind of a, you know, okay guy in the end. And I just, you know, I just had a lot of fun with it. And the humor is my kind of just dumb, (laughs) dumb, nonsensical humor. And the songs are are great too. It's got some really great songs in it. So I, I, you know, I had a lot of fun with this. Brad, this sounds like a movie that you would like. Yeah, um, I watched it too, and I I enjoyed it for the most part. I had a lot of fun with it. I'm not quite as enamored with it or in love with it as I've seen some people saying, but there there are just a lot of parts of this movie that I love. Uh, like Chris said, it does feel like it uh, runs a little too long, overstays its welcome a little bit, and I think the biggest problem I had with it is that sometimes it feels like they have a hard time balancing how seriously they take the drama and the romance side and mixing that with the extreme silliness of the the premise and the characters and some of the comedy because some of the comedy borders on parody but because Rachel McAdams uh you know and Dan Stevens and them they're, they're such good uh actors sometimes the drama stuff feels like it's going for it too much and making it a little too serious and I just it was kind of a rough juxtaposition to, to come together but the like um like Chris said too the soundtrack is awesome there's a great uh thing in here called like that's like a i think it's called like a song along or something like that that they say where it's like this big medley of like 1980s pop tunes and it features uh all of these actual people who performed in the real eurovision song contest um and yeah all the songs that will fairly rachel mcadams sing are great and so yeah it's it's a lot of fun it's definitely worth watching but i'm not it was not something that i was like super in love with necessarily but enjoyed very much so 
Yeah, I know. Like, I had heard some good things and some bad things about this. I like, I, I think one of you actually it was Chris that was recommending this in the Slack channel, and then I like went to our IMD or Run Tomatoes, and it was like getting like fifty percent rotten or something. So I was like, you know, who who is right here? Is this a good movie? Is it a bad movie? I know HT is not here. She did not like this. I will say uh, there is one big moment in this movie where I absolutely lost it. Lost it. Um, so, yeah, I, I won't say what it is because it's it's a hilarious surprise. But, yeah, um, that's what I'll say about that. Yeah. Oh, and I should also say the Slash Film cast also seemed like they did not like it quite a bit. Um, ben, what did you think? I love this movie. I, I watched the trailer and thought the movie would be unwatchable and basically wrote it off. And I was like, well, I'm never going to see this because I hated the trailer so much. And then Chris said that he really liked it. And my tastes tend to align with Chris's on, on comedies like this. And I saw several other people online that whose opinions I respect talk about, hey, this movie is actually really, really good. And I, I was like, I don't know if I fully believe this, but... I need something silly in my life right now. So I'm going to give this a shot. And I'm so glad that I did because I think it is, aside from Palm Springs, which I saw at Sundance uh, earlier this year and which I think comes on Hulu on like July 10th or something. So like very, very soon. I think this is my favorite new release of 2020. And I still have not seen a lot of big ones. I haven't seen uh, Defy Bloods yet or The Invisible Man even. But um, I really, really like this movie. I think it's, like Chris said, it's not like a, a drop-dead instant classic kind of thing, but for, for it, it like perfectly captures what it, what it's trying to do. And um, it's a gorgeous movie too. Like the David Dobkin directed this, who directed Wedding Crashers. And I sort of view him as sort of like a, um, I don't know, like a comedy journeyman kind of director. He's not exactly like an auteur, but the uh, visuals in this movie are really stunning. And it's largely because of the environments and the locations and stuff that they shoot at. So a lot of it is in Iceland and some of it is in, um, I think it's uh, Scotland is one of the other locations. And man, it's just really, really like beautifully shot and warm and cozy in, in a lot of ways. Um, and it's so, so funny. I laughed out loud so many times in this. And I, I this is one of those movies that I really wish I could have seen in a theater because I think as much as I enjoyed it at home, I probably would have liked it even more, um, you know, sitting in a, a crowded theater of people laughing at all of these great moments that are peppered throughout this thing. I, I really um, think it's like one of the best studio comedies that I've seen in a couple years, at least. So uh, I really enjoyed it. I mean, maybe I'm setting the bar too high talking like this, but, and like you mentioned, HT is, uh, is not a big fan. So it reactions are sort of all over the place on this one. Maybe it just sort of has to hit you in the right wavelength or something, but um yeah, I, I really enjoyed this movie. It It is weird how all over the place the reactions are for this movie. Like, some people really do not like it. And some people, like, you loved it. Like, I'm, I'm just so shocked that, like, usually we're all kind of, like, in the same ballpark. Do you know what I mean? Like, like it, it's not like it, it's so all over the map. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so it, it's interesting. I, I'm, I'm excited to check it out because... Like uh, a couple of you guys, I, I I was not expecting to even want to watch this film, but after hearing all these reactions, I want to want to check it out. Um, but okay, what I what I've been watching this past week, I watched uh, Into the Unknown on Disney Plus. Uh, Brad talked about this last week on the Water Cooler, I believe. Um, I was a huge fan of Frozen. Uh, I went into Frozen Two, and I was 
extremely disappointed. I thought it was kind of a mess of a movie. Uh, I I actually when when they announced this Into the Unknown, I, like I, I wasn't even excited to see this. This is a documentary series that's on Disney Plus. It's six episodes. Each episode is roughly forty minutes long, and it's showing the behind the scenes, the making of Frozen Two over the last year of production. And I wasn't particularly that interested in seeing this, but it's, it's a pandemic, and there's not much new stuff to watch so i thought i'd give it a chance and brad seemed to really like it uh so i put it on and i love this series i i I highly recommend all of you guys watch the series uh it is a fascinating look at the disney animation process and it's it goes deeper than your usual behind the scenes features because you get to like dive in deep and like, you know, follow the story of like an animator animating like a, a climactic moment in the, the movie. And you're, you're not just seeing like the standard stuff of like the stars recording their lines. Like you're seeing these boardroom meetings where they're like debating, not just boardroom meetings. They, they're, they have like at Disney, they have these screenings where they invite, uh, not only like, you know, some of the animators, but a lot of the filmmakers of previous Disney animated movies there to see the film. And then afterwards, for an entire day, they are locked in a boardroom. And basically, it's called a story trust meeting. And it's no holes barred, brutal notes. Like they're basically just like tearing it apart and saying what's wrong and suggesting ways of fixing it. And get, getting access to that room is just so fascinating. Uh, you know what? I know a lot of you guys are big fans of physical media and I'm one of those guys. It's like, you know, the future is digital. And uh, the one thing that I, uh, taking that stance and taking that life, the one thing I, I worry about is that we're going to lose special features. And, um, you know, I love, you know, I, I was all about the big wave of DVD releases when, you know, they, they would have like, you know, a DVD release of a movie. And it was like a four DVD set of that movie with special features and insanity. Uh, and I, I think we are losing some of that, but I, I also think that like the s- streaming services now we're getting these like shows like this where it's, I mean, we're getting what, what is six times 40, whatever that is. It's longer than a documentary I would ever expect to get on frozen two. And, you know, same thing happened with the Mandalorian. So I'm, I'm, I'm kind of happy that we are getting, content like this on like services like disney plus um there there are i hate to paint this documentary like this but i'm going to anyways uh i I was not a fan of frozen 2 i thought it was a a bit messy and watching this documentary i think kind of reinforces all my criticisms of that movie uh because like okay in frozen 2 there is there is a uh Elsa is hearing these voices in her head in Frozen 2, and it all leads up to this climactic moment at the end of the movie where it's a revelation of who she's hearing, and it's amazing that within, like, a few months of the premiere of this movie, they still had not figured out who the voice was that she was hearing. They were changing their mind. They were changing complete songs. They were, like, it is... And that's not to say it's like all movies are bad that do that late in production. I know a lot of Disney animated movies like that is tends to be the case. Like if you look at Frozen 1, I don't think Anna and Elsa were 
were um, sisters until a year before the film was going to be released. They came up with that idea and that completely changed the the way they approached the story. So that does happen all the time. I, I think that th- this time uh, it, it happened and they were making changes and there's there's some greatness of like you seeing like they do a test screening and how they react to the test screening and how they change the movie and how they like make it easier to understand. There's um, it's also very interesting to see how the music develops and uh, th- there's this one moment. I don't remember what, e- what episode it's in, but they're doing this conference call. Uh, the filmmakers are doing this conference call with the composers and uh, Chris Buck, one of the directors walks into the room, sees the cameras and like comments, this is going to be a bad day to have the cameras here. And then what follows is like this really contentious video conference call with the songwriters and the directors. It, it is great. Um, what else? Uh, the, the I don't know. It 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 feels. It, it's fascinating to see just this whole process and i know that they probably i don't want to say this is warts and all because this is disney and it is kind of glossy in a way but it is interesting to see disney like let people back and see these kind of see some of the stuff that's in here in the process i I highly recommend this series this is oh and also jennifer lee who is one of the directors of this film is you know the head of what Walt Disney animation now. So getting to, to get a feel of who she is and what her vision is for the future of Disney animation is, is kind of cool as well. So uh, into the unknown that is on Disney plus, I can't recommend this enough. Uh, run, don't walk, watch it. You'll love it. Um, I also over the uh, last week, they revealed that Splash Mountain was going to be rethemed as Princess and the Frog. And I have not seen Princess and the Frog since it uh, first came out in theaters. And I remember being so excited to see the, that film and also being so disappointed. Like, you know, I, I'm a big fan of hand-drawn animation. It felt and looked like it was going to be this classic uh, Disney film. And uh, I don't know, it's just so, so disappointed. And I haven't revisited it since and with this new theme park attraction announced and you know i have ordinary adventures uh i thought now would be a good time to kind of revisit it and give it a second set of eyes uh i i do love the old school painted backgrounds just so classical so beautiful this is a beautiful film and uh there's a couple great musical numbers like almost there uh i love dr facilier uh and his like trippy musical number the other side and um i do find lewis the jazz playing alligator he wants to be a human it's it's very annoying uh mama odie who is kind of like the yoda of, of this film is good but feels very derivative uh i don't know Th- this film was kind of positioned as the first uh african american disney princess and it, it does kind of annoy me that i f- spoilers for princess and the frog coming up but it annoys me that tiana is a frog for i would say 90 percent of this movie that we don't really get to see much of her as a human um i don't know i i i think i like the movie a little bit more than i i did the first time i saw it 
but I, I don't know. I still don't think it's that great. I think it's, uh, I don't know. It's, it's trying too hard to be a Disney classic and I don't feel like it, it has much to say for itself, but, uh, I, I do also acknowledge that I am uh, a white man and, uh, there's probably a generation of, of, uh, you know, POC females that are seeing for the first time someone representing them on the big screen in, in as a Disney princess, um, that, that could be powerful and stuff. I just don't, don't feel like it's up to the par of, you know, the other Disney films coming out around this time, even like frozen or, you know, I don't know. Uh, but okay. Let's, uh, th- does anybody here have a, a strong love for princess and the frog? I'm just curious. I wouldn't say a strong love, but I really liked it when it first came out. But then again, it's been a decade. So I, hard for me to say. Maybe I'll dislike it. Maybe I should revisit it and find out. But I have very complex feelings about the whole Disneyland, Disney World thing, Peter, which we've discussed offline. But yeah, I do think that this is a – just its, it's cultural impact has seemed to have grown over the years. Like I, It seemed to like make barely a blip 11 years ago, but I think – in time since then, I've heard more and more people talk about loving it. So I think it may be time for a revisit. Yeah, I uh, I will say this about the theme park uh, ride because I don't I don't think we ever talked about that on the podcast. After revisiting this movie and watching it, thinking of like how is the theme park ride of this movie going to exist? Th- there are a lot of things in this movie that I could totally see them, uh, you know reskinning splash mountain with and I, I i i do think it's a good idea i i do think um it will give splash mountain a, a much needed update and uh kids will finally care about the characters in that ride because none of, I, I feel like 99 percent of the people that go on splash mountain had never even seen song of the south probably didn't even know it existed so i i i am i am for it uh but uh i don't know i just don't think it's a great movie but yeah anyways um i also saw the first few episodes of central park on apple tv this is the new series from the guy that did uh bob's burgers i think and this is serialized where i think bob's burgers is episodic i've only seen a couple episodes of bob burgers so i could be wrong there Brad, am I right? Is Bob's Burgers episodic? I feel like you would have seen Bob's Burgers. Yeah, I mean, there are certain things that carry over, but it's it's episodic in the same way that The Simpsons is. Have you seen Central Park yet? Oh, you should see this. This is really good. The pilot episode of this is so ambitious, and it's so much to admire in it, admire about it. it. It's a musical set in Central Park, and there's it's following this one family, uh, and it's so clever it's fun has great songs it's an epic ensemble like story and it, it it's told in this like comedy musical after watching this first episode i was like oh my god why is nobody talking about this show this is incredible and then i started watching subsequent episodes and it's it kind of not it it it, it goes kind of down i want to say it goes downhill it's just not as great as that first episode but I would I would recommend everybody check out that first ep- episode of Central Park. It is incredible. Like it it is. I don't know. I, I, I'm still in it. I'm still gonna watch uh, future episodes of it. But uh, I I don't know that that first episode. Like it felt almost like if like 
Paul Thomas Anderson made a animated musical, uh, like, you know, one of his like ensemble things that is like, you know, intersecting stories and I don't know, really good. So check out uh, Central Park. And uh, the last thing I want to talk about today is I saw the first couple episodes of Unsolved Mysteries, the new version of this show that's on Netflix. This is uh, I was a big fan of the the show when I when I was younger. Uh, it used to give me nightmares. That theme song and Robert Stack, uh, you know, standing in the fog, and like you know, there's a murderer still out on the loose. If you have any details, then I'd go to sleep and like think the murderer is like outside my house. Uh, this uh, new Netflix did this uh, this reboot of the series, and it's different in that it's a single story per each episode. And uh, I'm not sure, like the first two episodes, it, it, it they are able to fill that time. I'm, I'm wondering if I kind of would want to have multiple stories per episode because I feel like some of these maybe overstay their welcome just a tiny bit. But the, the, the theme song is still terrifying. The first episode is, I mean, I guess both of the first two episodes are about missing people and uh, found bodies and... Uh, the first episode has so many interesting twists and turns. Netflix, I I know that they're like not that hands deep in all these true crime things, but I feel like Netflix has really found how to make these true crime things like tech and just like be great. Like they 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 have found the tone and the structure and the how when to introduce different twists and turns and what's going to keep people watching. And um, I th- this first episode is just so, so interesting. There's like this mysterious note that is found behind a television that makes no sense. I, I don't want to give too much away, but there's so many questions, very few answers. And I feel like that would be my one criticism of the show is you go into these shows and like it's such a a ride. It's such a exp- roller coaster ride of like, you know. Oh, this guy went missing. Like, what happened? Like, you, you know, you're going twists and turns, and then you never end up getting any res- resolution on it. It, it. it feels incomplete, and you've kind of, I, I mean, I guess that's the premise, right? It's unsolved mysteries. But, uh, Chris, you saw this whole whole first season, I think. Uh, yeah, I did. Um, I liked it. Uh, I, I I'm a big fan of the original and. This isn't as good as the original. Uh, I mean, it's it's better in terms of uh, production quality. I mean, this is like a highly well-produced, slick production. And the original had, you know, just like the worst special effects imaginable. But that was that was kind of part of the charm of the original. And, you know, I, I really miss having Robert Stack around. Obviously, he couldn't be back because he's dead, but I do miss them having some sort of host, you know, strutting around in, in the shadows in a trench coat because that's sort of part of what made the original so iconic. And I was really disappointed that of this first episode, there are no ghost episodes. There's one uh, UFO episode, but I was always a huge fan of, of the ghost episodes of the original series. Um, I do know there are six more episodes to come, so I'm hoping those additional six episodes, at least one of them will have a ghost episode. But beyond that, I, you know, I had fun with it. I liked, you know, it's, it's not so much like the original as it is just a, a new 
well-produced true crime series but you know it's got that great theme music going and you know i i I liked it so the original is better but i still like this do you think they'll end up doing updates i remember the original occasionally would have an update from someone that like it was almost like um i guess america's most wanted in that way that like if the you know new information in the in the case had came out since since like this is airing to so many people that they would actually like film an update in like season two and give you like the new information. Do you think they'll ever do that here? I hope so. I I used to love that too because you would think a segment was over and then like this the the creepy music would cut in and Robert Stack would say update and then he would say since we aired <laughs> this. We found out that the killer is living here. You know, so I, I hope they do something like that, but I really don't know. Yeah, I love that too. Okay, uh, let's move on to Brad. Brad, what have you been watching this week? Um, I what, got, finally got around to watching Extraction, which is the um, mercenary action thriller starring Chris Hemsworth uh, that premiered on Netflix not too long ago. Um, and I remember, I think Ben said that he appreciated the action in this movie, but overall, like, wasn't necessarily a big fan. Was that right, Ben? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I, I mostly agree because the action in this movie is spectacular. And that's largely because, uh, the director, Sam Hargrave is, um, a well-known, uh, stuntman who's worked on the Marvel movies with the Russo brothers. And, uh, the action in here really reminded me of a lot of uh, John Wick. There's some pretty intense, you know, uh, hand-to-hand combat scenes, stuff with knives and blades and the gun, the gunfight especially. Uh, it's pretty hard-hitting uh, and intense and very violent. But the the story does leave something to be desired because um, I, I found myself fascinated by pretty much every other character except for Chris Hemsworth's character. And that's not because Chris Hemsworth is necessarily bad in this movie. It's just a very typical you know, kind of character where uh, something tragic happened to me and I miss my family and now I'm drunk and mad and just trying to kill myself at every possible turn by getting into these crazy dangerous predicaments. Um, but, you know, other besides that, I, I think that the action here really does take it to a level where you can appreciate it and it's, it's entertaining and, um, and pretty, pretty solid. So I'm, I'm interested to see what Sam Hargrave continues to do uh, as a director after this. I haven't checked this out, but I, I still want to see it because of that one shot. So, yeah, it's pretty impressive. It's it's not quite as smooth as stuff from like 1917 um, and stuff like that because you can you can it's easier to see the seams of where they probably bridged shots and how they pulled it off. But it's such a fast paced sequence that moves across such a large stretch of uh, geography that it's it's still a pretty impressive sequence. I, I can't even imagine how difficult it was to plan and stitch all those shots together. Yeah. Uh, what what else have you been watching? Uh, and I also watched um, a couple episodes of this series called Somebody Feed Phil, uh, which is like a, a food travel series that follows Phil Rosenthal, who's the creator of Everybody Loves Raymond, as he goes to a bunch of different locations around the world, trying different food, meeting famous chefs, hanging out with some of his uh, comedy comedy friends and, and whatnot. Uh, and it's a really fun series. I've, I've only seen a couple episodes so far, but um, Phil is just like, he's such a, a goober. Like, he's kind of like... That uh, that goofy dad um, that like ev- you know everybody knows knows somewhere you know he has really sometimes cheesy jokes and like but like he's so uh, earnest and excited about the food that he tries and like whenever he tries something really good he does this like weird little dance and everything and like the look on his face is one of just genuine pleasure 
uh, and love for what he gets to do. So, um, yeah, if you, if you like those kinds of uh, shows where people travel around the world and eat delicious food that you immediately wish you could eat, um, it's, a, it's a good show to watch, especially since we can't go anywhere right now. <laughs> yeah, for sure. And then uh, I rewatched Grumpy Old Men, uh, which is on uh, HBO Max right now. And I've loved this movie uh, since I was a kid. This was my first introduction to uh, Jack Lemmon and Walter Matthau because I was so young. You know, I hadn't seen uh, The Odd Couple or anything like that. And so um, this was my introduction to them as a duo. And then as I grew older, you know, I saw the early work they did on on that classic movie. And uh, they're just so good in this movie. And I, I, I wish studios would, were still making movies like this because they really don't anymore. Oftentimes, you know, comedies are much more high concept and they don't really just focus on, you know, the these two friends who are also kind of enemies, uh, you know, and there's romance in there with Anne Margaret and just the the chemistry between them is incredible. Like they're they're so perfectly in tune to playing these two, you know, crusty old old guys who are constantly ribbing each other and messing with each other. And it's really it would be really easy for a movie like this nowadays, I think, to veer into stupid slapstick, you know, comedy territory. Uh, and this never never really goes there. It feels, you know, genuine and authentic. It has a great ensemble cast that also, you know, has Kevin Pollack um, and uh, and Daryl Hannah in it. And so, yeah, if um, if for some reason you haven't seen Grumpy Old Men and the sequel Grumpy Old Men, which is actually still pretty good too, um, you should watch them. They're both on HBO Max right now. Very cool. And uh, Jacob, you've also been watching a food-related TV show. Yes. A few weeks ago, I talked about being hopelessly uh, addicted to the trash that is Bar Rescue. And we briefly talked about uh, Restaurant Impossible, the more wholesome alternative. And I regretted to say that, like, oh, there's very limited episodes of Restaurant Impossible streaming on Hulu. Uh, so I'll stuck with Bar Rescue. But lo and behold, it turns out that um, my we have – AT&T TV, the relatively new digital service, and their on-demand uh, has access to hundreds of episodes of Restaurant Impossible. <laughs> so I've successfully weaned myself off Bar Rescue, and I'm watching Restaurant Impossible instead. Uh, pretty much the exact same show in terms of like basic structure as Bar Rescue. There's a failing business. Uh, tough-minded host comes in to fix everything. Uh, and leaves their, like after having not only fixed the restaurant, but also relationships as well. Uh, but whereas Bar Rescue really dwells on how awful everyone is and is all screaming and yelling and humiliation. Uh, Restaurant Impossible is uh, Chef Robert Irvine, who is this extremely buff, like Arnold Schwarzenegger shaped man. Who's also former, like a veteran of the British Navy. Who's also a, you know, celebrity chef. Uh, He like walks into a failing restaurant. And whereas John Taffer on Barrescue, his, 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 his first go-to thing is to scream and yell, uh, Robert Irvine, uh, he speaks very softly until he doesn't need to. And he carries himself with this sort of confidence that, like, it, that you really can't fake. And as, 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 a, as a TV character, Chef uh, Robert Irvine is this really compelling, like, like confident, very masculine, but very, like, you know, but not like, you know, macho uh, figure who commands quiet respect and we raise his voice because someone done fucked up <laughs> which is so it's it's, it's such a, uh, an interesting contrast in like and how a reality tv show can can portray like you know masculinity his bar rescue is just this sweaty screaming man who demands respect whereas robert irvine is cool and collected and earns your respect because he speaks to you confidently 
you know, squarely looks in the eye and tells the truth. And like I said, this is a reality TV show. Uh, for all, you know, <laughs> so certain amounts of things are going to be staged, certain amount of things are going to be set up. My, my research digging into this suggests that um, uh, Restaurant Impossible is far less, you know, fake than Bar Rescue, which is, there are tons of stories of Bar Rescue, like, setting up fake shit, whereas Restaurant Impossible, um, from what I can tell, tends to be pretty straightforward in how it makes the episode. It shows up, it shoots, and it leaves. Um, but I really like this show. I think it, I think as a portrayal of of, of a host figure um, who is positive and uplifting uh, without having to humiliate people is great. I think that, in fact, it goes into the actual process of renovating the restaurant instead of having it happen off screen is really fantastic. And I think the conversations he has with, you know, the people feel more honest, you know, even though you know, they're on TV, they're on camera, you know, this stuff is edited, but it, it, it feels like this is a show where the benefit, where like the, the overall benefit of it is people are good people need help asking for help is not a bad thing you know and it's just a really wholesome show peter i, I know you, you we talked about this briefly a few yeah. weeks ago uh, are you also I, I found you i found a picture of you on instagram you you, you met robert Irvine at a, at a photo op <laughs> <laughs> yes i did at uh, disney california adventure they had a food and uh wine festival and he was there in town to give like a seminar and uh kitra got got us to go there and we got to meet him after it was great he's a really nice dude um he what yeah i like about the show over bar rescue is everything you said it's 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 more about the people it feels less like watching bar rescue i feel bad after do you know what i mean like <laughs> it feels grime it's a grimy environment like it's crappy people and i don't feel like they're that much better off at the end of the episode than when they started and i i know that this is reality tv and i i know that like you know, you're not going to have a complete transform transformation of these people in one episode of a reality TV show. And you, you, you can – and I also play this game. I'm, I'm sure you've probably done this, uh, Jacob, where I, I'll go on like Yelp or something after and Yelp the, the restaurant. And many times the restaurants are out of business and yeah. he was unable to, you know, uh, of, of inflict change. And then other times I'll see like it completely turned around. Like it's like one of the, you know, five star businesses in this community. Um, so, you know, you can have it either way. Uh, but yeah, no, I, I really like the renovation stuff that they do here and, and getting to, to see that aspect of it. And I also love when stuff goes wrong and it, it's clearly things are not going as what the reality TV producers have planned. And there's moments where uh, Mark Summers, who many of you guys probably uh i mean many of you guys if you're a person who grew up in the 80s you'll remember as the host of double dare oh i remember now Peter. yeah <laughs> i'm a 90s kid i remember that so yeah he's now a producer of a lot of food network shows and stuff like that and he there's points where shit hits the fan on the show and he like you know he's normally in the truck and you don't see him but when he gets involved you're like oh something's going down <laughs> yeah it, it's very enjoyable. I, I like it. it. It's it's comfort television. It's not like great, but it's uh it's good to have on in the background. I think. Yeah, and that's why I, I kind of I can't remember if it was off mic or not. But I, I joke that Christian watches because it's relaxing. If a show that is about like people who've been failing, the fact that it's a show about accepting responsibility and somebody coming in and saying, "I'm here to help you. Let me help you." I end up each episode. I feel fulfilled 
in a, in a, in a way that like I feel like you know what things can get better, <laughs> which seems like a really silly thing to say. But like, but I, but I restaurant makeover show. But there we go. That's restaurant impossible. I like it a lot. Uh, other food show. Uh, it's brand new called Taste the Nation. Stream on Hulu. This is a new show that's uh, uh, stars or is uh, it's hosted by uh, Padma Lakshmi, who's best known as a as a uh, former model, cookbook author, and uh, the host of Top Chef, one of the hosts and judges on Top Chef. And I've always loved her on Top Chef. I love her social media presence. She's this, uh, she's outspoken and she's smart and she's funny. And uh, Taste Nation is her traveling around the United States and exploring how immigrant food has shaped American culture and how American culture has shaped immigrant food. Uh, first episodes her visiting El Paso and visiting Mexican food and you know how being on the border of Mexico, uh, how how uh, Mexicans who come to America, how their food has shifted uh, from just being in the United States. Uh, second episode is uh, about like German food, hot dogs, sausages, and how uh, German immigrant communities have like embedded themselves in the United States culture via their food. Third episode is the last one I watched. I think there's ten total from the season. Third one is about uh, Indian food in New York City, and it's just this. It's such a really, really. It's a really fun travelogue show. It's really fun to watch. Um, you know, sit down, eat all this delicious, amazing looking food. Uh, but it's also a really hopeful reminder about how you know immigrants have made America better. And about how cuisine, you know, reflects the melting pot that is the United States. I found this to be a delightful, illuminating comfort food show. Uh, that's Taste the Nation. It is a Hulu show. It's streaming there right now. Uh, shifting gears from um, <laughs> f- f- from food shows to horror uh, movies, uh, Yummy. Uh, it's a new Shudder original. It's a Belgian horror movie. It's a zombie film about a zombie outbreak at a plastic surgery clinic where... Uh, uh, to character where main characters have gone from Belgium to uh, a shady, unnamed Eastern European country to get shady, cheap plastic surgery. Uh, but naturally, there is a zombie outbreak because of a new treatment that the head doctor has devised. And there's lots of flesh tearing, lots of disembowelings, uh, all kinds of things happen to human bodies. I wish it was funnier. I wish it was more consistent. And I wish the ending wasn't really terrible as a really terrible ending. But if you're a, pl- a fan of practical gore and of things just splattering everywhere of really like politically incorrect, gross out gags, uh, yummy has something for you. I'm not going to recommend it wholeheartedly, but if you're, if you're the kind of person who likes to see really awful things happen to people in latex, uh, yummy streaming on shutter. It, it is what it is. Uh, Speaking of horror movies that are what they are, uh, The Darkness, a movie I missed in theaters when it came out four years ago, is now at the top of Netflix every time I open it. So I finally watched it. This is the, uh, a film from director Greg McLean. Um, you got to start with uh, Wolf Creek, a really nasty Australian uh, slasher film. And a few years ago, he made uh, The Belko Experiment, the horror film written by James Gunn. Uh, and this film is never as interesting as either of those. I'm not even a big fan of other films, but at least they're... They have like some kind of perspective. The Darkness is a very generic uh, haunting movie. Uh, Kevin Bacon is a father of a family whose autistic son brings home brings home cursed rocks from the Grand Canyon. It was haunted by Native American demons. I, I wish it was anything at all. It's a Blumhouse movie. It feels very small. It never quite gets scary. It's on the verge of being interesting with with how it brings in you know um, you know indigenous. Uh, people to help this white family out of their problem but i wish it dug in deeper in some way i feel like if, has anyone else here seen the darkness i feel like chris must have seen this at some point i have not seen this i do keep seeing it on netflix all the time but i've i've never gotten around to seeing it and based on what you said i probably never will <laughs> yeah I, I can't i can't recommend the darkness uh unless you really 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 need a haunted house movie right now and like and 
there, there are days when my wife and I just need a haunted house movie, and that's why we watch The Darkness. Uh, speaking of horror movies, I want to talk briefly about a movie called Trick. This is a 2019 film from Patrick Lussier, directed Drive Angry, the uh, My Bloody Valentine remake. And it's a slasher film about a um, guy named Trick, a high school student who kills a bunch of people one year in Halloween, escapes, comes back next Halloween, kills more people, escapes, comes back next Halloween, kills more people, and escapes. And literally in the first 20 minutes of the movie, it's like four Halloweens of him massacring people. And <laughs> Omar Epps is um, the detective, dogly trying to track him down. And a very awful-looking Jamie Kennedy, he looks like he's 70 years old, plays the town doctor. And it's a deeply bizarre movie because it, feels like five movies in one is literally trying to be like an entire horror franchise in one movie, like recycling through multiple years and like fast forwarding, you know, to next events. But here's the kicker for this thing. It's streaming on Hulu. And one night after a very drunken horror movie binge, my wife and I watched the first 15 minutes, turned it off. And a few nights later, we watched another 15 minutes, turned it off. We've been watching Trick for about four (laughs) weeks now. (laughs) I think we have about 20 minutes left finally. But it really does feel like maybe it's the right way to watch Trick. It's really not very good. It's incredibly violent. So once again, if you like your horror movies, like blisteringly violent, there's 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 gore gags aplenty here. Uh, but since like every ten minutes, it like resets itself to be like a whole new year with a whole new set of characters up to be killed. Maybe this is the right way to watch Trick. Is at one a.m. after you've already watched two other movies in tiny chunks. Has anyone else seen your, seen Trick? No, no, okay. but it, it but it, it sounds like you you've quibbed it. Yeah, you, you, you've been finding a oh, way to watch it in Quibi style. I quibbed Trick. <laughs> anyway, maybe you should Quibi Trick. All of you listening to this, uh, all of you on the podcast, go Quibi Trick. Let me know how you think. Uh, at me uh, on Instagram. I don't know. Uh, finally, I started watching Shit's Creek. I'm only in season one. I'm finding it very pleasant. I'm told season two is where it gets great. So I'll check back in. Uh, but right now, I'm committed to at least giving Shit's Creek uh, enough time for it to win me over, and I hope it does. It will. Yeah. that's what i'm uh, yes. yeah the the i i like from the start but the 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 last episode of season two is where it turns into the show it really is and then everything from there on is amazing and you're going to be like weeping trust me on this like there are multiple <laughs> episodes that are going to make you weep it's such a good show yeah i'm i'm finding it very very pleasant i'm finding each episode very very enjoyable but my wife and you and my sister-in-law have all said, just, just wait. So I'm I'm powering through and enjoying it just fine, waiting to fall in love. And I will com- – I'm committed. I'm committed. I mean, c- call me a TV snob. I mean and, – and by the way, you know, I, I, we've just talked about Restaurant Impossible, so I don't think anybody would call me a TV snob. But I just can't do shows where people are like, it gets good in the second season. It gets good in the third season. Like, I, I just can't – Spend I mean, all that time to get to the good part of it. I will say, I think, like I said, I I do think the show is good from the start, but by the end of season two, it goes from good to great, and it becomes yeah. uh, like one of my favorite shows of all time. But I, I honestly think the Shit's Creek is good from the beginning, but it starts off just being a very pleasant Canadian comedy, and then it turns into something genuinely emotional and still very funny. And and that's what I, I like most about the show. Okay. Uh, Chris, what have you been watching this week? Uh, I rewatched gladiator for the first time in a long time. It just came out on a uh, 4k Blu-ray. So I don't think I've seen this since I don't want to say theaters. Cause I know I watched it on a home video once, but it's been a very long time since I've seen it. 
And uh, I think it holds up. Um, I do think it's wild to think that this was like a best picture winner because it really doesn't seem like that because it's, you know, it's basically just a very gory action movie. And for that to have won best picture is kind of crazy, but it's, you know, it's a fun movie. Russell Crowe is very good, even though, you know, they keep calling he's he's a Spaniard in the movie. And it's very clear that he is not, <laughs> but they just keep calling him Spaniard. And, he, you know, his his Australian accent keeps keeps coming in every now and then. But, you know, Ridley Scott directs the hell out of the movie. And it's it's, you know, it's stylish. Uh, Joaquin Phoenix is clearly having a lot of fun playing just a, a totally reprehensible wormy guy. Uh, so, yeah gladiator it's a fun movie i i don't know if i would say like it's one of the better best picture winners but it's definitely entertaining okay uh ben what have you been watching i watched spike lee's do the right thing for the first time uh i somehow had never seen this movie i have no idea how that happened um and for a long time it wasn't available to stream on any of the services that i pay for and i am pretty stingy when it comes to paying for stuff, you know, outside of the streaming services that I already subscribe to. Uh, but uh, I think it was, and th- this isn't going to do anybody any good, but I think over the past week or so, and maybe it just ended yesterday, um, the, I want to say it was the Academy or some, th- there was several institutions banded together to release this movie for free on most of the big streaming platforms. So I watched this on Amazon prime. Um, and uh, I, I finally, you know, the the stars finally aligned for me to be able to watch Do the Right Thing. And this movie was pretty incredible. I, I really, really, really wish I would have seen this when I was younger. Um, not only because the movie is so um, vital and, uh, you know, the, the subject matter is still very clearly still something that, that we are grappling with as a nation right now on, on the biggest stage possible, but also because Spike Lee is a filmmaker that I just, I think I, I largely missed out on his work growing up. I just never, I don't know if I was paying attention to the wrong, uh, if I had my priorities in the wrong place or whatever, but I don't know what the, the circumstances were, but I just never, uh, I was never introduced to him as a, a, uh, key member of the film community. And he absolutely is. And I have no idea why it's taken, you know, this long for me to get around to like one of the defining works of American cinema. But uh, yeah, this movie is very, very good. I I will say that I was a little bowled over by the filmmaking to the point where after it was over, I kind of had to sit there for a while. And I talked to my wife about it afterwards. She watched it with me and I was like, what exactly is Spike Lee's uh, perspective here? Like what, what is he, what is his ultimate point like what is he trying to say what what um you know there are several different characters who have different uh opinions and perspectives on the the uh i guess the use of violence and and racial injustice and all this kind of stuff and and the movie seems to flow from one to the other so smoothly that i couldn't get a good sense of what spike lee the person was actually trying to uh, communicate if that makes any sense i was sort of like um distracted by the the flashiness of the filmmaking that, and really like how this movie came out in 1989 guys, this was before like the Rodney King situation. This was like, but, but all of the, the uh, subject matter is just so incredibly relevant still. So I I don't know. I I was very um, 
sort of like taken aback by the movie, uh, even, you know, with with the decades of it building a reputation as like one of these, you know, incredible American films. So um, I don't know. I, I still don't know uh, with just one watch under my belt. I, I'm still not sure if I can really pinpoint exactly what Spike Lee's like ultimate message of the movie is. Um, and I think uh, HT was was mentioning on her uh, discussion of the five bloods on here a week or so ago that like the movie has this moment where the Korean American or the the Korean uh, immigrants who run a a shop uh, sort of on the corner opposite one of the main locations in the film, they sort of come face to face with the, the black characters in the film. And the movie sort of tries to go out of its way to say like, Oh, we're in the same situation. And HG was like, I'm not really sure if they are in the same situation. And so I see some of those shortcomings. Um, but, and I guess the ultimate message is maybe just like in the title, like just do the right thing <laughs> like at all, at all times, whatever that means to you um, to sort of like fight the good fight. So uh, I don't know. Has anybody here rewatched do the right thing? recently yeah yeah i watched a few weeks ago so my when i wrote my top 15 films of all time I, on slash on my first arrive this was in my top 10 um the one thing i there's a quote it's actually interestingly it's from a roger ebert's great movies essay about this uh he's quoting spike lee and i, I ever since i read that essay this has stuck with me um lee says he's been asked many times over the years if mookie the main character did the right thing then lee observes not one person of color has ever asked me that question uh and that's really stuck with me about what the movie means and if Mookie did the right thing, um, which when I first thought when I was younger, I wasn't sure. And now that I'm older and I think about that a lot. So that's, that's what yeah. I'll say. Yeah, definitely. Uh, so that I think is available to rent on Amazon right now um, for you know, three ninety nine or whatever it is. Um, so you can check that out there. If you have not seen it, I would definitely recommend uh, not doing what I did and waiting, you know, 35 years to see the movie because uh, <laughs> or I guess that's not, that's not exactly true because it came out in 1989, but uh, you get the point. Anyway, uh, next up, I watched, rewatched actually, The Phantom of the Opera, the 2004 uh, adaptation of Andrew Lloyd Webber's musical. This is directed by Joel Schumacher, who just died, um, you know, a week or so ago. And uh, it's on HBO Max. And I saw this movie in theaters when it came out and remembered actually liking it, um, even though I was not really a, you know, a big fan of musicals at that time. Uh, I remember being very um, impressed with the music and I just thought that it was a really stylish movie and and I was actually excited to rewatch it because my my wife had never seen it um and I do not like this movie actually uh so I I would not recommend checking this out it's um you know aside from like the uh the problematic aspects of it, you know, viewing it through a 2020 lens of like these two guys fighting over this young ingenue who is much, much younger than both of them and uh, the sort of disturbing behavior that both of them exhibit. Um, the movie just drags out. It, it, it lasts a long time. It's like a two hour and I don't know, it, it's over two hours and every song just feels like it lasts for an eternity. And like, especially when you compare it to something like Hamilton, which I'll talk about in a minute, um, where those songs just have such a natural dynamic pace to them. Phantom of the Opera just feels like you're trudging through molasses to get from one song to the next. It's just, I, I have no idea what my, you know, high school era self was thinking um, when I when I actually liked this movie back then. But uh, Emmy Rossum, this is like one of her big first roles. She's pretty good in it. Um, you know, definitely has that like wide-eyed 
Spielberg face thing going on throughout the whole thing. Gerard Butler is the phantom, which, you know, <laughs> uh, is really insane to think about now. Um, you know, he was not the, nearly the, the persona that he, <laughs> that he has become back in, uh, when, you know, when this movie was made in 2004. And then Patrick Wilson is also the other guy who is like vying for Emmy Rossum's attention. And he's, um, not great in this but uh is an actor who I, I really like a lot of his later era work so uh it's sort of amusing to to watch um now but i i can't really recommend it i, I think as a joel schumacher film it's interesting because it has a lot of the that big sweeping operatic feel that that made him such a actually like a, a weirdly good fit to direct batman movies and you can see a lot of the Batman stuff, that, that sort of style in this film. There's a scene where there's a sword fight in a graveyard and it's all snowy and there are a billion statues everywhere. And it's like, this is this is definitely the same guy who made Gotham City, this like huge art deco, like, you know, the Gotham Observatory is on the foot, is, is in the hand of like a 6,000 foot statue in the city. Like, you know, it's, it's just truly insane. So... Uh, yeah, that's the Phantom of the Opera. It's streaming on HBO Max. I would not really recommend it, but maybe if you're a Joel Schumacher completist, uh, you could check that out if you want to. Um, okay, Hamilton. Uh, this movie is streaming on Disney Plus starting tomorrow, July 3rd. And this is uh, not as much a movie as it is just a, a live capture of the uh, famous Lin-Manuel Miranda musical. And... Um, I guess I have some complicated feelings about this because I've listened to the uh, the Broadway recording of the the cast album and all that stuff a million times. I've seen the show once already. I've, as I mentioned on this podcast before, I was going to see it right before the pandemic started, and that had to that whole thing got canceled. So this is like my second time seeing this thing visually, and um, for a lot of people, if this is their, especially if this is their first uh, viewing of it, their first time like literally seeing. Uh, people and tying the audio to to the visuals in that way, I think it's going to be uh, really great. And and it is like a very good um, version of what it's trying to do. I just had some issues with it. I, I felt like it. I was slightly underwhelmed because I thought that there were some opportunities to get a little bit more creative with the camera work than what we actually got. Um, Thomas Kale directed this movie. He also directed the stage version of the show. And there are some great close-ups in here and there are, you know, mo- most of the movie is, is very good. And there are actually several transcendent moments, like the, some of the, the real big songs, the camera pushes in on, on these performers faces and it works even better than listening to the album because you can see the effort that they're putting into it. And you can see that they're sweaty and dancing and doing all this stuff at the same exact time that you don't, that doesn't really translate as well when you're just listening to the audio. Um, so a lot of that is, is uh, a lot of the movie pluses the show. Um, but there are some moments where it just doesn't quite, uh, it doesn't quite work as well as I think it should. And, and uh, we can talk about, you know, maybe if when once more people have seen it, we can talk about maybe that's if that's an unfair assessment or what. But um, I just I think that there was an opportunity here to editorialize the story a little bit and put the camera in some interesting places that uh, Thomas Kale just doesn't do. And it, you know, since he doesn't do that, I was kind of hoping, okay, maybe put the camera far enough back where it almost replicates the experience from the audience perspective. Show me the whole stage so I can choose where to look. And the movie for a lot of the times is sort of in this weird middle ground where the camera is like 
near the stage and you can't quite see the whole thing. So you're sort of forced to look. It's like you have blinders on and and you can't quite see the visual splendor of the whole thing and, and appreciate all the choreography and all of the different moments that are going on in the background. And then there's these close-up moments, which happen a lot and are, you know, more effective at some times than they are at others. So I, I guess it was a little bit more of a mixed bag for me. I still, I, I reviewed it on the site. I gave it a seven out of 10. And I, I think for people who, you know, this is their first introduction to Hamilton will have a much better experience watching it than I did. So I'll, I'm especially curious to see what you think, Peter, if you get a chance to check this out. But, um, and, and, you know, I, I really want to hear from Chris and Jacob too, because I know both of you guys, um, you know, have, have, like are big fans of this, Brad. I don't remember what have you have you seen Hamilton before, or have you listened to the show? Or are you trying to stay uh, fresh for the the uh, Disney Plus version? No, I actually got to see it uh, on stage in Chicago oh, last right. year. Okay. My girlfriend, man, my, my girlfriend was able to secure tickets uh, as a cool birthday present. That's so right. that's right. Okay, so yeah, I'm, I really want to hear what all you guys have to say about this. And and HG, I know has seen it already. She did some interviews and stuff. Maybe we can link to my review and, and her interviews in the, the show notes of this episode as well. And I, I want to hear from her too. So um, yeah, we'll probably have a, a big Hamilton discussion uh, on an upcoming episode, but I just wanted to lay that out there since it was still fresh on my mind. I just rewatched or I just watched it the, uh, the other day. So there's that that comes out tomorrow on Disney plus. And then finally uh, on Disney plus also, I watched the black cauldron for the first time. And this movie came out in 1985 and it has the reputation of being the movie that almost killed Disney animation. And um, that's the only thing I really knew about it going in. I just knew of that reputation. And this, you know, <laughs> this is before the uh, the Disney Renaissance, the Disney animation Renaissance. And um, it, it was a very expensive movie to make at the time. It did not perform very well at the box office. Uh, and it's kind of easy to see why watching it now. I, I was you know, I watched this sort of as a curio more than anything else. And uh, man, this is a dark movie that several times during the film, I looked at my wife and said, I cannot believe this is a Disney film. <laughs> so um, it is super dark. Uh, the opening uh, narration is is um, disturbing. There are several like pure, like really, really disturbing images in it. Uh, the bad guy who is known as the Horned King. It, it, first of all, it, for those of you who don't know, it's basically like set in the Middle Ages and it's like, this uh, fantasy sort of um, quest type of movie. It's very, very much like based on the same types of mythology that informed uh, the Lord of the Rings. So there are a ton of similarities in the plot to what Tolkien wrote and, and stories that I was familiar with before watching this. So it's a little bit weird to watch this because you can kind of plot out exactly what's going to happen way before it does just based on like the most stereotypical tropes of, of the fantasy genre. But um, man, it, it is a dark movie. There is some dark shit in this. And like, <laughs> there are like creepy faces and like there's blood at one point. And I was like, man, I just don't remember seeing this kind of stuff in Disney animated movies. So I think they made a concerted effort to never make anything remotely close to this ever again. Um, but I'm curious what you guys think, like Jacob and, and Peter, especially since I know you guys are like huge Disney people. What What is your relationship like with the Black Cauldron? My relationship is that it's not very good, but boy, is it interesting. <laughs> No, yeah, same thing. I haven't seen it in many years. I remember, I remember. Well, first of all, this is n notable in other respects because it's the first uh, Disney animated movie that had uh, CG imagery in it, so it, it has that going for it. I, I, <laughs> I, I think the film 
grossed like twenty one million dollars when it came out. Yeah, not good. And yeah, not good. That's that's not even a good opening weekend nowadays. You know that that would be a failure of an opening weekend. And I remember it, it did so badly that it had it did not get a home video release until the year nineteen ninety eight. Yeah, that's more than a decade after it came out. That's really <laughs> awful. Yeah, it's crazy. It, yeah, it, 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 it's it's worth checking out if if you haven't seen it. And if you're paying for Disney Plus, then you have it there. So maybe. <laughs> I don't know. What, what what would you give it out of ten? Then. Oh boy. Um. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe like a, I guess a four or five or something. Wow. <laughs> okay. It, it, there's some weird stuff in here. There's like bizarre magic and. Uh, elves and fairies and like stuff that just i don't know i i I, most of the time when i watch uh disney movies i kind of wish like okay you don't have to dumb down this stuff as much as you do like you know kids are smart kids can handle kids are smarter than disney thinks i think like you know kids can handle some story materials that um disney often like sands the edges off but this one i was (laughs) I was sort of viewing it, I guess, more from like a Disney executive perspective and being like, I cannot believe that this got through that, like the characters names are like unpronounceable. Many of them, like I I just something as basic as that, like, you know, from a merchandising perspective, from all the stuff that Disney has leaned on and, and, you know, is known for in the culture. I can't believe that the, the, one of the characters in this is named uh, Princess Ilanwi, which is like really a tough word to say and then there's another person who's named um fluter flam and if you look at the spelling of that it's just absolutely insane so i don't know there are several things that um i just sort of like my mouth was agape and i just shook my head back and forth like i i really can't believe that this is a disney movie yeah another interesting thing is you mentioned how dark this movie is the original director on this was uh ron musker who is the co-director of, you know, a lot of the Disney Renaissance, like Little Mermaid, Aladdin, Hercules, uh, I guess Princess and the Frog and Moana. And uh, he got kicked off the production because his version was said to be too comedic. Huh. <laughs> so, so I want to see that version. I want to I want to see that anima- animatic reel of what yeah. the comedic, too comedic uh, version of the Black Cauldron is. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, okay. Anyways, let's move on to what we've been eating. Brad, what have you been eating this week? Um, I got my hands on some new snacks um, that are available out there. Uh, I got Starburst flavored fruit by the foot. Um, when it comes to the fruit snacks of my childhood, <laughs> I think fruit by the foot is probably top because uh, it's it's chewy and has just the right artificial fruit flavor. Um, fruit roll-ups are usually too sticky and easily get stuck in your teeth. Uh, and same with gushers. And gushers, I find, they often rupture and make your hands stickier. But fruit by the foot, it's just neat and offers the same satisfaction. And the Starburst flavors make it even better. You know, um, I honestly, I think I like these more than just having regular Starburst because they're it's, it's easier to chew them they're not they're not quite as uh tough to, to chew through so it's yeah the starbursts uh, you know, get like the, stuck in your teeth sometimes yeah exactly so and um these are the fruit by the foot has always been like a softer fruit snack kind of thing and so um yeah the it has all the regular starburst flavors it's orange strawberry cherry and lemon um and they're they all taste exactly like you expect them to just in a, a fruit by the foot package so if, if you can find them uh check find them at uh your local grocery walmart what have you 
Okay, what else? Um, so I just learned of this company that apparently um, it has been around for a while, but their products haven't always been available like across the country, I guess, far from what I understand. Um, it's uh, Mrs. Freshly. And they make they're they're kind of like another company that's similar to like a Hostess or a Little Debbie, where they make a variety of like snack cakes and donuts and and stuff like that. And if they have these uh, candy bar themed cupcakes, um, for one's Reese's, uh, one's Oreo, that's a cookie, not a candy bar, um, and Hershey's. And uh, they're I didn't like the Oreo one too much. The Oreo one, it's like these three mini brownies that come with Oreo cookie crumbles on them. And they're just a little too dry for my taste. They're not very uh, moist, which is how I like a good brownie. Um, but the two cupcakes, the Hershey's and Reese's cupcakes, are great because not only do they have uh, good frosting on them, but inside they have filling. Reese's has peanut butter filling, and the Hershey's one has chocolate filling. Uh, and those are really, uh, really good. So I, I found those at Walmart, and I um, I think that's probably the best place to find them now that they're everywhere because I'm not sure specifically if what other retailers or whatever had those. And then, uh, this isn't necessarily a revelation, but I wish they would do stuff like this more often. There's a new uh, mashup series of cereals that I, I this, at least this is the first one. I don't know if they're coming out with more, but it's just a box of cereal that has Frosted Flakes and Fruit Loops mixed <laughs> together inside of it. So, like, I, I could easily do this myself if I wanted to, just by buying Frosted Flakes and Fruit Loops and putting them in a bowl. But here, they're just, you know, mixed up for me in a bag that I, that I can buy at the store. So I did. And uh, I honestly never really thought about mixing Fruit Loops and Frosted Flakes, but they're good. Uh, you know, the by, the by themselves, I enjoyed them. So why wouldn't I like them together? It's, it's a good mix of the Flakes and the Fruit Loops. <laughs> but that seems like an odd pairing. I wouldn't have thought, like, if you were, like, mixed two cereals, that wouldn't have been in my, like, top ten, like, creations yeah i i agree but uh it, it does work uh, and it's uh so yeah if you if you see it out there I, I it's worth giving it a shot or at the very least buying them separately and mixing them together yourself <laughs> <laughs> and then uh pepsi has a new flavor they came out with um a while back they introduced these pepsi flavors where they have a splash of different fruit juices there's uh there's lime there's lemon there's mango and they just recently came out with a new one that's pepsi with a splash of pineapple juice and when the these first ones came out, I was surprised that they were actually good because I never I've never really thought of a lot of brown sodas as being good for mixing with fruit flavors, but the Pepsi ones were actually good. And uh, this one with pineapple juice is close to being my favorite. Uh, the mango one is still the best one in my opinion, but um, pineapple is my favorite fruit, and so having the the hint of pineapple juice flavor with the Pepsi actually works pretty well. And I wouldn't mind um, making like. Um, a a coke and rum uh with this because it has huh. that extra pineapple flavor um if i were to make an alcoholic beverage with it so yeah uh pepsi with pine a splash of pineapple juice i believe it's a walmart exclusive i also enjoy myself some pineapple so i want to check this out uh let's let's move on to what we've been playing jacob what have you been playing this week uh more like what i am planning to play uh i am currently learning the alien role-playing game uh set in the world of the alien and aliens franchise uh, some friends expressed interest, and I've been itching to run a game. I've been, you know, I, I play in a, in a weekly D and D game, uh, but I'm a player. I, I really love uh, planning and orchestrating and running RPGs. So, uh, the Alien RPG uh, is 
you know, it's, it's a horror sci-fi uh, game that you and your other players are uh, telling stories of being hunted to the dark <laughs> by xenomorphs. And uh, the game, the rule book the, the, is very, it's hardcover. It's very heavy. It's very thick, but I've also, uh, it's one of the best RPG manuals I've ever encountered. It is incredibly clear. It's a beautiful look at it. The game is elucidated in a way that a lot of manuals uh, fail to do. Like I find reading a lot of manuals to be chore, uh, like, okay, charts and numbers and trying to learn how it all connects together. Whereas the alien game is good. It's a really good job of building all its mechanics around a very simple, but not simplistic dice system uh, that applies to everybody. I mean, like if you play D and D, for example, you're rolling D20s to do this. Then you got to roll a D8 to do that. Oh, but you got to add a plus D4 modifier. Whereas uh, in an alien RPG, it's just D6s, which is a regular six-sided die. And uh, the, the die system exists to add tension to the story. Uh, without going into extreme detail, the basic gist is you roll dice based on your stats to do something. And you can always um, push it, uh, what's what it's called, to add more dice to your roll. But in doing so, you have to add stress to your character and every time you add stress you, have, you get to roll more dice since you're more focused and the adrenaline is running but if you ever roll a one on a stress dice you panic and something bad happens to you so it's a really cool dice system because it really plays into the hard situation of like intense focus and adrenaline terror leading to you falling apart uh so everything you're doing has that tension to it so it seems, seems like a really cool system i'm gonna be playing uh, over Zoom in the next few weeks, getting that together. Uh, so I'll keep you guys updated on how it plays out. I'm really looking forward to it. I'm very, very excited to run a game. Uh, another game that I'm um, eagerly waiting to play is called Thousand Year Old Vampire. Uh, it's a single player RPG. It's, it's literally, you play it by yourself. I've never played a single player RPG before, so I'm, I'm excited. And the basic gist is that um, you are a vampire and you create a character with with various you know skills and memories then you literally role play over centuries of existence by rolling a dice and going to various areas in the, in the manual and tells you this has happened here are repercussions effect and you'll know, write down what has happened and the basic gist that through this system you create the life of a vampire uh with all the you know highs and lows and awfulness and because you live for so long, you're only, allowed, you're only allowed to keep so many memories. So eventually you start losing memories, which means you start like sacrificing parts of yourself to uh, keep living. And I'm told it's a very powerful experience if you really put yourself into it. Uh, I bought the physical version, which came with a PDF. So I'm kind of skimming the PDF because the uh, it is a extremely limited print run for a physical version. It's literally a guy um, who's had himself published and you have to go kind of go through hoops through itch.io, the independent game site, to uh, buy them. And mine was just delayed. They sent a very apologetic email about how um, the demand is high enough that and and, and this warehouse is uh, changing hands. So it's just, so my whole thing is like it's available for ten bucks if you want to go buy a digital version and take a look immediately. I'm waiting for a physical copy to arrive. That was like it cost me forty five dollars for the physical hardcover copy. Uh, but I'm really excited about this because I like the idea of games that not only can be played solo while I'm in quarantine, uh, but two, that seems to be like really pushing what a game can be. Uh, so this is, it could be just, you know, a really fun writing exercise. It could be like an experience that, you know, lingers with me. I'm hoping it's the latter, but either way, I'm very eager to give it a shot. Very cool. Uh, Brad, what have you been playing? I played this game that's been around for um, since late 2018, I think it came out. It's called 
Donut County. Uh, it's an indie game uh, from Annapurna Interactive, and it's a very simple uh, premise. Basically, you control this uh, hole that you move around uh, different areas of Los Angeles and swallow objects and animals and buildings and, and stuff like that. And uh, what's um, the premise is? It's actually just kind of odd and funny because it's it's about this raccoon that runs this local donut shop and he's like using this mobile app to deliver donuts but he's not actually delivering donuts but these holes that are swallowing everything up and it ends up destroying this uh town called donut county and it's uh the story that plays out is actually really there's the between each level you play there's these interstitials where everyone in the town is like mad at the raccoon and blaming him and the dialogue between the characters um is is actually really funny and but what what's interesting about this is that after i played it i read that it's um actually the game creator made it with this um fairly subtle metaphor uh about gentrification and i knew that before playing the game and as i was uh, watching unfold i was like oh this is really interesting because it it's not in your face about it but once you get to the end you realize that it really is about just um the gentrification of you know these uh, neighborhoods that have been taken over by uh, you know whether it's businesses and people that just completely trample over any semblance of culture that is in those areas, but the game itself is just it's just a fun simple game. I, I played it and I I think I it was I was done playing it within like an hour and a half or something like that. So it's a speedy uh, game. It's not very expensive. I got it when it was on sale. I think for five dollars uh, not too long ago. Um, and it's just it's just a lot of fun the, um, moving as around as a whole and trying to swallow up all the stuff. And there's a puzzle aspect to it, so you're not just constantly moving around and watching things fall into the hole, but you have to do certain things in order to access other parts in order to swallow them. And so it's uh, the puzzle aspect is fun to figure out too. Very cool. Okay, so that does it for today's Slash Home Daily. You can find more of all of our work at SlashFilm.com. You can find this podcast on iTunes, Google, Overcast, Spotify, all the popular podcast apps. Please feel free to send your feedback, questions, comments, concerns to us at Peter at SlashFilm.com. And rate and read this podcast on iTunes. Tell your friends, spread the word, and have a good July 4th, everybody. Wear a mask. Peter. Great episode, guys. That was a good episode. Peter. uh, Peter. Peter. Yeah. Peter. Peter. Jacob. Peter. Uh, I have in front of me the gargantuan book of insult, offense, and affrontery. Sharp retorts, reposts, costs, equips, implied put down by Louis A. Safian. Peter, this question is rhetorical. You do not have to answer. Do you want me to read from the book today? <laughs> no. All right, good, because I'm answering. Open up to page 33. The Chiselers section. Chiselers. There's a word we all use every day to describe comedy. <clears throat> wait, wait what, what, what does Chiselers mean? I don't know. We'll find out. Uh, Peter, you're an expert at, ha- at handing out bologna disguised as food for thought. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> Let me repeat this. Uh, Peter is an expert at handing out bologna disguised as food for thought. Uh, has anybody eaten yes. bologna since they were a kid? I feel like when I was a kid, I would was, get bologna sandwiches. A, yeah, every now and then still I eat get bologna? a craving for it. There was a time not too long ago we ended up talking about it on one of the, of my podcast episodes, and it made everyone on the show want to go make a bologna sandwich with potato chips on it, and so a lot of us did, and and it was delicious. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, uh, Peter's an expert at handing out bologna. This guy is his food for thought. Oh boy. <laughs> <clears throat> <laughs> Uh, 
then when he pats you on the back, he's trying to get you to cough up something. Hmm. If you lend uh, if you lend Brad money, you can charge it to profit and louse. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> this may be the worst stretch you've ever done from the book. Well, Chris, Chris was born a mountaineer. It hasn't been on that level since. Oh. Oh. Born a mountaineer. Like, when was this book written? Look, Louis A. Safian's comedy is timeless. Like, look, we're all a bunch of chiselers here. Like, look at us, chiselers uh, can hanging they, can out. Can anybody here name the movie where they might have learned what a chiseler is? Chris is the one I would most uh, expect to know this, if that provides any hint. Uh, it's like on the tip of my tongue, and I can't. Oh, mm, shit. I can't remember. <laughs> I know. I, I like, hear it in my Yeah, head. it is the remember. Martin Scorsese movie, Gangs of New York. That's, yeah. I think oh, I, I, knew the I did not. That. I learned it from but Gangs of New York. Too. And they tell. They te- uh, it's a, what is it? Bro? Yeah, like a con artist. A swindler. Like, it's a, the scene where um, ah. uh, Bill the Butcher's, like, right-hand man insults Leonardo DiCaprio with some kind of slang. And he's like, he, and he asks him what it means because he's never heard it. And he's like, now, chiseler. If you called us chiselers, you know, then I'd have a problem. <laughs> well, that, that Martin Scorsese, give him a free hand and he'll stick it right in your pocket. Wow. <laughs> can, can, can we just imagine Louis A. Safian, like, walking around in the world of gangs of New York, like, telling his joke and people laughing? We're gonna, thinking he's the like, we're funniest gonna, guy. Well, Louis A. Safian, circa 1863, was the funniest man in all of New York City. 